King in Black is taking over the Marvel Universe and Marvel Insider as well. Check out Marvel Insider all this month to stay in the know and earn points for amazing rewards like an exclusive digital wallpaper of Todd Nock's variant cover for King in Black number one. Head over to marvel.com insider to learn more. Terms apply. Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale January 20th, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yeah! Tucker, it's all happening. I bought a new toilet for <laughs> my new home. It's got not one, but two flush options. How how do you feel about that? You know, I'm not even going to go. I'm not even going to go. I, I You know what? You're not going to My brain go? started racing. Yeah, exactly. My brain started immediately. This is such dangerous territory. It's so potent. It's immediately like sure you is said potent. one. Yeah. You said one very innocent sentence. And I like leapt off like like I had six different pathways that I found. And you know what? I'm going to take none of them. I'm going to I'm going to leave it. I'm going to say, hmm, what a what a nice errand you ran for your new home. That's beautiful. <laughs> Getting work done, doing it, making sure that it's all set for when you move in. That's wonderful, sir. The other weird like thing that I got really excited about in all this new home stuff is that they now make electrical outlets. Like you can change the plugs and the outlets so that in addition to the regular plugs, you can have USB plugs. So you have regular plug, regular plug, and then two USBs next to it game changer uh this is not just about new toilets and electricity this is our podcast about the new comics on sale as well as a fun reading club we have a great guest this week we have daredevil writer chip zadarsky talking about a whole bunch of great daredevil issues from the 1980s we'll get into those a little bit later uh first things first we want to give you our picks and after that we'll give out some pulleys aka our weekly awards for random stuff that we just thought of as we were reading these books uh first things let's just dive right into uh, the first pick of the week, which is King in Black number three. Uh, Tucker, this is one of those series like like War of the Realms where, yeah, every every issue is a pick. There's just no yeah. getting around it. It's just mm-hmm. it's not only that big and that important to the Marvel Universe and Marvel Comics. It's just that damn good. The comics are just that good. Um, and King of Black number three is written by Donnie Cates, penciled by Ryan Stegman, inked by J.P. Meyer, and colored by Frank Martin. Um, this one is just an escalation of events. It just it feels like, all right, the good guys and the bad guys are just one-upping each other at every single turn. Uh, of course, if you don't know what King of Black is, it is the big Marvel Comics event right now, wherein Null, the god of the abyss, basically he's been around since before time, before light, and he is big and mean and evil, and he just wants darkness and uh, and, and nothing out there. He, uh, he has come to Earth to try to snuff out everything. He's also the god of the symbiotes, so it's a big honking bit of venom action all throughout this. But it is a Marvel Universe event, so you got Thor, you've got uh, Iron Man, you've got Captain America and Spider-Man and tons and tons of Marvel Universe heroes. And it it actually, like, that the escalation thing is really just the word that keeps popping up in my head when I think about this issue. Null does something, the heroes fight back and one-up them, then Null one-ups them, and then by the end we get this amazing moment where I will give a pulley to the new Iron Man armor of the week. And I will not say what it is, but it's just like, okay, this is this is where we're going, this is it, this is the big time, uh, until we get to that final issue. And it also, in addition to being all the cool different things going on, it's also like Donnie saying, I wrote this book and I was thinking about King and Black when I was doing it, and now it's falling into this big storyline. It's really cool. It's well orchestrated and wonderfully done. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm just such a huge fan of everything going on with King and Black. And, you know, I'm thinking back to some Marvel Creative Summits where a bunch of writers come into town and and have conversations. And this is way back when we were in an office and hearing the conversations surrounding King and Black and the planning for King and Black and stuff like that. And I remember there being a huge emphasis on the tie-in books. And we have one of those for my first pick of the week this week, which is Black Cat number two. And I say that because there are some really cool stories in here that 
that deserve their own focus. They deserve their own issues. They deserve to be really examined and, and to dive into them because there's just such fun stuff to happen here. Case in point, Black Cat was in the middle of a heist when all of the Null and Symbiote stuff happened in New York City. And obviously, Felicia has to lend a hand. But the coolest hook ever, it's so much fun, is that she has to do a heist here. She has to actually steal something from Null himself. And what is that thing? That thing is Stephen Strange. In order to get the Sorcerer Supreme back, in order for Doctor Strange to be able to help out with the cause... Felicia and her team of ne'er-do-wells have to steal him from the almighty Null. Such a fun premise. And uh, issue number one was a great kickstart. I'm such a huge fan of Jed McKay. C.F. Via is a great artist on this, uh, perfectly paired, uh, and has done some great Black Cat stuff in the past. The colors in this are by Brian Reburn. Letters are by Ferran Delgado. It all adds up to a really, really fun tale. Look, I am such a big fan of Jed McKay's writing. I think he's the perfect writer to take care of a Black Cat story and do it justice. Uh, there's also some fun costume stuff going on in here. We really get to dig into what this really cool hook ends up meaning in real time as you're examining the story. It is a lot of fun. There's a couple of captions that to me are the perfect encapsulation of why everyone should read this. It's Black Cat thinking about what the hell's going on. And she thinks a glamorous lady thief, a wheelman, a doctor of destruction, <laughs> a ghost dog and an unconscious wizard versus endless alien dragons. Yeah. If that doesn't make you want to read this comic book, then I don't know if you like comic books. <laughs> like, I don't know if you like entertainment or fun because that is, it rules so hard. And, and highlighting, let's let's make sure to double highlight that little ghost dog part. If you're a fan of the Donnyverse, if you're a fan of everything that Donny Cates has been doing, King and Black and otherwise, you get a little ghost dog action in here and you might know what that means. It's great. Hell yeah. Uh, all right, our third pick of the week goes to X-Force number 16, written by Benjamin Percy, penciled by Joshua Kassara, colors by Guru EFX, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I was going to say penciled by friend of the show, Joshua Kassara, which he is, but so is Benjamin Percy. And I think actually <laughs> Josh listens to the show because he tweeted to one or both of us like not long ago a reference to something one of us said on yes. the show. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you sneaky devil. What are you doing? Are you out mowing your lawn like friend yeah. Will Sliney uh, <laughs> listening to the show? Um, will will occasionally, you know, ping me whenever I mention his name. Uh, but uh, Joshua, if you are listening, Jesus Christ, man, there's, um, the there's a panel in this issue that is one of my favorite panels in memory, it, it's it's a so the story has um, Krakoa is all funked up and there's bad stuff happening. There's terrors underneath the surface and it's messing with people. It's messing with the mutants. It's messing with Krakoa. And so a team goes to investigate. That team is Forge, who under the leadership of Benjamin Percy and and the the current X creators has become one of my favorite characters. He's such a bro in like a fun way. <laughs> So you've got Forge, you've got Quentin Quire and Wolverine going underwater to figure this out. We get amazing new underwater like diving suit costumes, which if there was any justice in the world, Jesse Falcon would be right now making Marvel Legends figures of these costumes. <laughs> this second yeah. and they look so cool and they're so fun, but they go underwater to figure out what's going on. And there's this full page splash silent and it's from behind of Wolverine coming face to face with something. It is absolutely jaw droppingly perfect. A uh, big shout out to Guru FX, just constantly being an amazing colorist and the, the subtleties in the colors here, the way it almost looks like watercolors underwater. It just, when you pair Guru and Josh's work, it's magic. And it's, it's a weird, creepy, dangerous, messed up, intense, beautiful book. Uh, there's a like three pages later, you get this other panel of deep sea nightmares. And I don't know, I'm just stunned by it. It's, it's such a beautiful book. Uh, so cool, so fun, really intense. It feels like it's also at the same time moving so much forward for the mutants, for X-Men, great characterization. And on top of that, they bring in the big boy, Namor. And 
it's done in a way where Namor shows up and it reminds you that sometimes when Namor shows up, move out the way because he's a big flipping deal and it rules really, really hard. This book and King of Black, they really like it's these and, and a couple of others, like even, you know, with CF uh, via this is a big week for really incredible art. I think mm. you're going to see that as we talk about the rest of the books and you pick up your comics this week. Um, man, it's it's freaking rad as hell. All right, that's what we have for our picks this week. Now we're moving into our pulleys where we give little shout outs to some of our favorite moments in new comics this week. The first one up, speaking of great art, is Avengers number 41. And why I say that in particular for this one, I might just get my pulley. It goes out to Javier Garon, another friend of the show, uh, love you, Javi, is uh, there are so many characters in this issue. And in particular, just kind of in this story arc at large, we're in the middle of the Enter the Phoenix kind of mini saga right here. That is how big it feels. It's really, really uh, nuts what goes on in here. Essentially, the Phoenix is looking for a new host. Obviously, that is a task that requires the Avengers to take care of it. And I feel like if I counted, there might be like 30, maybe more characters in this issue. But mm. what makes it such an artistic achievement is that you always know where you are. Not just know you know where you are in the middle of an action scene. You know where you are emotionally at every single point of this book. And that is such a big deal to be able to move your eye across the page, to be able to move your heart and your mind through this story and really have you invest in a lot of what's going on from different characters' perspectives, from different characters' mindsets, where they are, how they're approaching this issue. It's really, really incredible. Look, it's incredible. It's crazy. And it's also the least surprising thing in the world because it's <laughs> Jason Aaron writing. It's Javier Garon doing the art. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, some great guest uh, characters in there, as you mentioned. Um, all right, let's move over to cable number seven. Speaking of incredible art and wonderful people, Phil Noto doing the artistic chores here. We need to get Phil on the show. I want to talk to him about yeah. his um, his art, his background in animation and other stuff. Um, and then we could just talk about 90s punk rock and really confuse <laughs> Tucker uh, immensely. Um, and of course, we've been working on getting uh, writer Jerry Duggan on the show. I think he's been on already. But if not, we need to have him again. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of stuff that he's cooking up across all the X-Books. Uh, but in here, we've got Cable sort of trying to save some babies, but also trying to figure out why he needs to save some babies, which leads to the pulley that I will give for Codpiece of the Week. <laughs> it goes to uh, someone whom Cable discovers is uh, involved in his big mystery and, and all the stuff that he's getting worked into. Phil draws a hell of a Codpiece. <laughs> I totally agree. All right, next up we have Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon, number one. This was a book that knocked me off my feet. It took me by surprise in a way that I was not expecting whatsoever. Look, it's written by Marvel legend Larry Hama. So that's a good place to start. The art is absolutely gorgeous. It's a little bit strange. It's a little bit kind of cacophonous. It's a little bit unusual, but it all adds up to being what for me, I'll say it, this is a big statement. Maybe this gets my pulley for generating a big statement for me uh, for this week. This might be the best individual Iron Fist issue that I've read since I started working at Marvel. So that's at least, that's at least three years. Mm. Um, it is so good. Uh, I think it just taps into the heart of this character in such a great way. Obviously, we get Luke involved. Luke Cage is involved here. Their dynamic is so pitch perfect. And then we get this supporting cast of weirdos that I loved so much, so instantly. It is really such an achievement. I think it does this thing of being so concise and getting you right to the story so quickly while also giving you enough detail that you just want more and more and more. You want to savor over the whole thing because it's all so carefully done. It's all so beautifully done. Um, yeah, I was so surprised by this issue, but I really, really, really loved it. Yeah, that was... Um 
that's a whopper. That that could have been one of our picks of the week easily. Sure. It's really freaking great. Yeah. Uh, also great is Maestro War and Pax number one. This is the second Maestro limited series by Peter David that we've we've been putting out recently. Of course, following up on the classic legendary story uh, Future Imperfect from the 1990s. So Peter David's here doing it again, and it's got pencils by Javier Pina, who uh, really crushes it here. Javier again, like this is such a great week for art great week for comics let's just say it's a great week for comics this one has maestro going to dc and fighting a group of uh humans that are left over that are not yet part of his rule and uh kind of getting his ass kicked and this also has what i will give a pulley for is the damn son panels of the week and i will just say quote go to hell and when you read it you're going to be like damn son because it's it's really 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 like that it's um hell of a great book i hope we do these maestro series like forever like give me like four or five issues little stories over and over again as you tell these future stories because they can they have so much room to work with and they're so good more 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 yeah i love it too it's really really excellent all right we're wrapping up this week of new comics with star wars dr afra number seven Star Wars Dr. Aphra, that's a series that for me has, you know, one of the hallmarks of it. And we spoke with writer Alyssa Wong about this when she was on the show about its nonstop Star Wars adventure. Uh, You're right attached at the hip to Dr. Aphra and you're usually running from something, usually trying to not get blasted into bits by the Empire or who else knows uh, what. Uh, This issue slows down a little bit. Maybe for the first half we slow down. We get to hang out with Sunna Staros, which is just the best a character that i love fka han solo's wife remember that what a great introduction to this character when we got to know sana right in the very beginning uh, and it's really really cool to get to hang out with her again here and then we're doing some classic afra peeking around corners trying to steal stuff trying to lie trying to get out of trouble and it is just the best this book continues to deliver on the premise in the best way. I think Alyssa has such a command of this character. And beyond that, what you expect when you open this book in particular, not just Star Wars in general, which is action, adventure, fantasy, all of that wrapped into one, but it is this space archaeologist that I think she just has such amazing command of. This is another great issue that I think balances that action with those slower character moments where you get to know uh, the people a little bit better. It's just great stuff. It's really, really great achievement. It's also a Star Wars title where I could pick three characters named after people i know yeah <laughs> uh i saw a tucker i saw a Pock, and i saw a sunna there may be even more that i was missing which is terrific i love star wars yeah it's great okay that's what we have for individual issues on sale this week now moving over to print collections uh we have four on offer and some really really good stuff too that immediately pop out to me our dawn of x volume 11 that is the continuing collection of everything amazing going on in the dawn of x the landmark dawn of x and then we have immortal hulk volume 8 the keeper of the door you cannot go wrong with a print collection of immortal hulk Indeed. Uh, Over on Marvel Unlimited, tons of great books out there uh, because they were just released three months ago. So three issues of Ten of Swords in Marvel Unlimited this week. Cable, Hellions, New Mutants. Get the full list on marvel.com and dig into all those. Uh, And when you're digging into those on Marvel Unlimited, make sure you read Daredevil issues 261, 266, and 278 through 282 because those are the books we are talking with Mr. Chip Zdarsky about this week on our reading club. Tucker, these are some great damn comics, great damn conversation. Are you ready for this? My man, I had to to cool myself off to talk to Chip, but oh yeah, let's do it. And he heats you right back up. Let's hear it. <laughs> Chip Zdarsky, welcome to Marvel's Pull List. How are you? You know, I mean, global pandemic, but other than that, you know, things are things are pretty good. Good. We thank you for coming on the show. I want to thank you for picking some great comics for our reading club. 
I friggin' love this run of Daredevil, and so it's going to be a whole lot of fun to dig into these issues. Once again, these issues are uh, 261, 266, and 272 through 282 of the original Daredevil run of comics, all written by Ann Nascenti, all penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Al Williamson. Friggin' just wow, wow, wow. Yeah, Yeah, we could do a whole podcast just on the inks. Yeah, we ended up, uh, Tucker and I recently spoke with Christopher Priest about his Spider-Man versus Wolverine comic because Al mm-hmm. Williamson inked that over uh, Mark Bright and just elevates amazing artists to like even beyond what you remember. Yeah, yeah. Like when I first read these issues, it was one of the first times I took note of the inker. Like, you know, you kind of hit that stage of your reading where you're just like, oh, it's not just like one person making this whole thing or just the writer and the artist. Al Williamson and Kyle Baker were like the two inkers that I first went, oh, okay. You can really bring a lot to this at the inking stage. Um, I am pulling up, uh, I wanted to see because these issues, uh, the first issue, number 261, came out August 2nd of 1988 and I, the okay. thing that was that like kind of struck me as i started to reread these is thinking about the tone of these issues the tone and just the style of everything in light of what else marvel was publishing at that time because um, yeah. you go into 88 and then to 89 so mcfarlane is on amazing spider-man you've got like new mutants right about to get into rob liefeld Mm-hmm. Um, time, you know, we've got uh, a whole bunch of stuff and it's, it's an interesting piece of like real estate in the Marvel universe. Yeah. And this daredevil run just feels so different from mainstream comics. Yeah. And I mean, uh, part of it is, and I, I got to talk to Anna Senti recently about her run and she was following Frank Miller. So that was kind of a double sword. Like daredevil had some heat from that, obviously. Um, and it also, put forth the idea that like, oh, just let creators do what they want on this title and stand back and just kind of let it happen. Of course, the second edge to that sword is you're following Frank Miller. And that's that's a hard thing to do. So she really made it her own and, and John Romita Jr. made it his own too. Like it was, it was the first time Romita, I think really stepped out of his dad's shadow as an artist. Like his kind of work on Amazing Spider-Man was clearly his own, but it still had a lot of remnants of Romita Sr. And on here, like he started to get a bit more of the stylized figures that he kind of later became known for. And the storytelling is just super, super elegant. I think Ramita Jr. is like one of the probably the best storytellers in, in comics history. And it's super evident in this run. It's funny that we're talking about this. I mean, it makes perfect sense given all the context, but it was a couple months ago. I think it might have been during quarantine. Ryan sent me a one-off issue of Anna Senti's Daredevil. And just said, mm-hmm. effing read this right now. Yeah. <laughs> Which issue? If that was 283. I just looked it up. So it's the, right after this. Yes, so, exactly. So it's, it's the last one. Yeah. Was that her last issue? She did more after this. So like after this, there's like one issue with, I think, a very young Mark Bagley, <laughs> like a very political issue with Captain America and Daredevil, like in the countryside. Uh, and then after that, it's Daredevil coming back to New York. And uh, I think Kieran Dwyer, I think Lee Weeks, maybe on those issues as well. Like it's it's, it's where she closes it out, mm-hmm. like Matt with a memory loss, like becoming a boxer. But yeah, this I mean, those are those are really solid issues. But this is kind of like I picked these because I think it's it's Nascenti and Ramita Jr. at their peak and getting so comfortable with the title that they can just do crazy stuff <laughs> as is evident <laughs> in the ones that i chose like i think daredevil purists sometimes look at this run and go like well that's not really daredevil but um these characters are so malleable and you can do so many different things with them and put them in different situations that i find it really inspiring like you know my daredevil run right now i'm doing some interesting things i think but i'm like the story i'm telling you is a very traditional daredevil story up until now anyways and and looking at nascenti and ramita jr what they did i'm just like man, like just the guts to just set part of it in hell with this cast of characters. (laughs) Well, I mean, even let's start at 261 because Daredevil's not really even in the book, this issue. It's all about like fallout from some previous stuff that they don't even really talk about. It's just Daredevil is coming in and out of consciousness in a field and it's about Hell's Kitchen 
looking for Daredevil and it opens yeah. this opening page. I know, right? <laughs> is I read it three times because I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You take yeah. Johnny Storm, yeah. this vapid dude, and like in one page, she does so much cool character work with who he is and where he fits into the Marvel Universe. And then that look on his face and the fire, the way that Johnny draws it, I was just like, okay, great. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's my favorite Johnny Storm story, which is a weird thing to say in a Daredevil <laughs> book. But also, you know, talking to Ms. Nascenti, like when she came into this gig, like she got the job at Marvel from like, I think like as an ad in the Village Voice or something, hmm. like uh, to be like an assistant editor. And like, she didn't know a lot about Marvel before that. So she was kind of learning on the job and kind of falling in love with the characters. But I think because she came into it as an adult, she has such a fresh take on these characters. She probably like looked at a Fantastic Four comic and went like, what is that like to just set yourself on fire? Like well, something that you and I wouldn't really think about because we just, we read them as kids. And so we're just like, oh yeah, he turns on fire and he flies around. But yeah, there's this, this single page opening of Johnny Storm just starting to catch on fire and the look on his face and the, you know, the, the interior monologue is just so awesome. It blew my mind as a reader. I think it was Matt Rosenberg who said, basically, every writer would kill to write Daredevil. And yeah. I think the malleability that you spoke to is a huge part of that. I think that comes from how many different, like, crucial facets there are to mm -hmm. Matthew Murdoch's life, whether that's his childhood, his childhood trauma, his relationship with his father, the boxing. Hell's Kitchen itself, the vigilantism, the kind of in-between space he plays in and all that, the Catholicism. Yeah. There's so much to that and there's so much you can lean into in different ways. And so it's just so fun to go back to this run and see, to your point, how even outside of all of that and how fresh and different this run is, even given all of those facts, even given all those things yeah. that we already know, because it, it's just so fun to see in real time, so to speak, what created the malleability that we think of the character today. Yeah, he's, he's the one Marvel character that has the most duality and contradictions to the character. Like the good Catholic boy who dresses as the devil, the lawyer who goes out at night and beats people up in a mask, and like the high moral ethical haughtiness to the character with his kind of like semi-womanizing <laughs> aspect too, which, which is explored in the run as well. His relationship with Karen Page and uh, Typhoid Mary and uh, later on, number nine and Brandy. Like the women in Nascenti's run are just... There's no cookie cutter uh, aspects about them, which is something I, I think every writer kind of has to keep in mind when generating new characters the way she does. Yeah. Yeah. This first issue is like, it's the best human torch story. And, and even though it's the best human torch story, it also sums up Daredevil, like his absence and the way Johnny Storm tries to replace him and then realizes he can't uh, sums up why we love the character of Daredevil and what role he plays in the Marvel Universe. I want to get into Typhoid Mary that you talked about. But first, Johnny Storm's like, all right, I'm going into the Hell's Kitchen bar. I got to dress the part. I've got to put on my <laughs> wallet chain and my T-shirt that says bad exclamation yeah. point. I yeah. like I wish we had that conversation between Anne and Johnny and, and Ralph and whoever was like, here's the look that we're going for. I mean, the, the best part of all of that is that he walks in with the shirt that says bad on it. And three or four pages later, you get the reveal that on the back, it says real bad, <laughs> which, <laughs> which kills me. It's funny, like uh, talking to, can I call her Anne? I'm just gonna say Anne, cause it's easier. When I was talking to Anne, she talked a lot about like just the conversations with John and the excitement where like John would be like, oh, I saw this guy in the street today and he looked like this. Cause they're all in New York during kind of the eighties, right? And nineties. and the stuff he would see would end up being characters in the book and like vice versa. Like they would just talk about New York and the look of things. So I can only imagine they were just like, Oh, you ever see those posers who like, <laughs> you know, look like they're tough going into a bar in New York. Like that's what we need here. <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad you brought up that part of like living and working in New York that they had. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Marvel's declassified uh, where our Lorraine and Evan have an episode where they talk to Anne uh, specifically about living and working in New York City and bringing oh, awesome. that and her bringing that into the Daredevil book. Um, so any of our listeners out there, check out uh, Marvel's Declassified on Sirius XM for more about that. It's really, really cool. 
Chip, is that something you find yourself doing? Do you people watch or just generally speaking, do you take influence from people in your life or people that you're around? Yeah, it's it's funny. The um, uh, the one thing I kind of noticed once I started kind of really getting into writing comic books is that I no longer listen to podcasts. <laughs> now I'm just constantly trying to overhear people and just like just taking information around me. Pre-pandemic, I would travel to New York a couple of times a year or two and travel around and like you just kind of take mental notes of, of characters and people. Like it's that weird thing where New York has changed so much since like the Frank Miller kind of gritty daredevil stuff uh like a hell's kitchen <laughs> obviously it is not the hell's kitchen that was uh, traditionally portrayed in the comic so you have to cheat it a little bit to kind of find a, an area in new york that like kind of suits these stories so it, it's weirdly become more fictionalized as time goes on like we have in-story reasons for it like i always love the fact that in the tv show they you know blamed it on like the avengers uh loki fight like mm-hmm. it destroyed everything and the crime all of a sudden came into the neighborhood. <laughs> and we've, we've kind of, we play with that a little bit with kind of like destroying hell's kitchen and like kind of a secret plot to kind of uh, keep crime there. But uh, uh, yeah, like we'll never have the authenticity of Nascenti and Ramita on this daredevil run, unfortunately. Um, this issue also is a little bit different than the rest that we were reading for this reading club, because I think this is the only issue in the bunch that has both Kingpin and Typhoid Mary in it. Yeah. Uh, both characters that are parts of your run. Kingpin has been a huge part of your run so far. And Typhoid has really shown up of late when you were reading. Was it like, did you glom on to these characters as part of like why you love the book or what, what do you think about these Oh yeah, God! Like uh, especially the way Ramita drew uh, Kingpin, like just so imposing. Do you find, like, when you started pitching your Daredevil run and and having those conversations, is there a pressure to utilize the classic Daredevil toy box in terms of supporting cast and supporting characters, or do you feel inspired at times to create new character Cole North is a character that I love or bring in characters that are completely unexpected out of left field in the Marvel universe into the fold. Is there any kind of regular formula for a book like Daredevil? No, I mean, it's all dependent on the story you want to tell. Obviously when you're dealing with a book like this, where there's what, like 70 years of characters, 60 years, like there's a lot you can pull from. And sometimes, you know, the deep dive is kind of a special thing for some of the the readers. Yeah, it depends where you want to go with it. Like, you know, I knew Typhoid Mary was going to come in because I I had plans for Fisk that involved her. Um, So it became a matter of like, okay, well, at what point do you bring her in? Like, you also don't want to overload the reader with kind of a nostalgia burst. Like, hey, here's all your favorites. Yeah. And with Fisk, I could have avoided having him in there for a long time. But I needed the complimentary story to what Matt was going through. and, Mm -hmm. And he... He fit the bill too too well to have him off the table. Mm-hmm. With a character like Fisk too, and I think this goes to the strength of our antagonist characters, they could carry a book on their own just as easily as, you know, our heroes. A, a guy like yeah. Fisk, I could read twenty pages every month of what's going on with him because it's so there's so many layers to it. Yeah, and I, I you know, it's it's Matt Murdoch's book, it's Daredevil's book, but I'm more interested in Fisk as a character hmm. because there's, there's stuff there that just hasn't been explored that we're going to like, especially going into like second, third year stuff on the title. We've got huge plans for Fisk and um, stuff that hopefully will surprise readers. A peek behind the curtain for listeners. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday, Ryan and I were in a meeting where we sat down and got the, the download from Daredevil editor Devin Lewis for the next 18 months, two years. Oh, oh that gossiping Gary. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> About what's coming in the book. And it's just ridiculously exciting. I got I got one more thing to say about 261. Because it has Johnny Storm fighting this giant man named Baby to prove himself. And he beats Baby without using his powers. And my favorite thing is that everyone in the bar is just like, uh, that was great and all, but I think we're going to kill you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Hell's Kitchen in the 80s, baby. <laughs> and then he burns down the bar. Oh, my God. Oh, that Johnny part was Storm. so sad. The poor bartender. It's so sad. I know. And then Johnny's like, oh, we'll, we'll fix it. We'll repair it. I got to go. I can't do this. And he flies off crying. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. great. <laughs> Classic Johnny. Classic Johnny. 
Uh, yeah, in Daredevil 266 is the next issue you chose. It's called A Beer with the Devil. Uh, it came out January 3rd, 1989. Essentially the same creative team. Um, this one, you know, every year websites will do like favorite holiday issues. I think this yeah. is one to throw into the mix next year or later in the year when you're you're looking for a just an interesting divergent <laughs> holiday story because it's something. Yeah. You know, talking about the New York experience that originated from from Anne Nascenti spending Christmas in a bar. Mm-hmm. Like she just like observed all these people and like wondered what their stories were. And uh, this is what what came of it. You know, it's a it's a one off issue at Christmas with Daredevil after losing everything, just sitting in a bar like that's basically the story and and the stories uh that kind of surround him and spoilers but like it's it's mephisto playing with them and playing with everyone in the bar which is such a fun idea literal drink with the devil on christmas day uh with a man fully dressed up as the devil (laughs) (laughs) and all these all these awesome little characters around Yeah. yeah but it's like all the bar flies are just like yeah whatever that's dd whatever let him drink (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite things about uh, how Nascenti handles Daredevil in the books. Just like people are just like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that guy. <laughs> They're just so used to it. Like, no one questions it. The way that Mephisto is visualized in here is, it really is something special. It, it, it's one of those things that I definitely got the feeling with Wilson Fisk in the previous issue we just talked about. Mephisto here. And I put Marco Cicchetto's Electra in the same kind of category where you already know it's this instantaneous gut reaction where you're like, in 20 years, I'm going to remember the way this character looked. Yeah. Uh, and it's just really incredible. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'd be interested to find out like how they pulled it off because, you know, before this, obviously uh, Mephisto was, you know, the classic John Buscema look like a super villain, but in here, like, when he's finally revealed, like he just looks like a demon. And, and, you know, obviously in the next story that we'll talk about, like um, he progressively becomes more and more like corpulent and just like giant and uh, with a crazy kind of strands of thick strands of hair. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's wild. Like I'm, I'm surprised I actually kind of let them basically redesign him in that way. This issue, I mean, it's really, it's very encapsulated inside this bar, this conversation between Daredevil and the devil. Um, one of the the other things I wanted to point out before we move on is just the way that they play with Mephisto's look before it transforms into the devil look that mm-hmm. we know, playing with gender and like subtle yeah. angles. And and I, even as I'm reading it, I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm like, man, Johnny's so good because you just one angle this way and one panel that way. And it, there's just this, like, you can almost see it if it was in motion, how your eyes would be sort of like trying to focus on who is this person. It's really cool. Yeah. And like, like there's that great thing, like, you know, the brothers get into a, the, the fight in the bar and, you know, there's a stabbing and everyone in the bar is kind of watching this happen while Daredevil's making out with Mephisto and Daredevil snaps out of it. He's like, what, what's going on? And, one of the bar patrons is like, well, you would have noticed if you weren't like, you know, sucking face with that dude at the bar. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I love that so much. It's so like, it's Christmas. Daredevil's making out the guy at the bar. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. It's New York. This is what happens. A guy in a devil suit's making out Christmas with a guy at the bar while someone's getting stabbed 10 feet away. Like, Who it's among just, us it sums has up not New been York. in that situation? Uh, I've been in a couple, but uh, yeah, yeah. It's such a great take on Mephisto. Like, yeah. Viewed from different people. Like you see what he wants you to see. It's, it's almost like that has that feeling. I'm thinking about that crucial scene in, in your run, uh, Chip, where finally Matt and, and Cole meet up at a diner essentially. Yeah. And, and one of my favorite things in the past couple of years in comics, and I'm talking about new characters, storylines, Splash Pages, period, is the cover for that issue that Julian Tatina Tedesco did, which is just like a painting of like people's hands at a table. And yeah. it's just unbelievable. I, I, I really just, I'm just leading us down this long pathway to get to mention the name Julian Tatino Tedesco. And oh, if we're God. talking about Daredevil, we're talking about your run. I yeah. I have to bring that up just because that cover and the covers that Julian's done are just unreal 
he's the best and like you know i uh, i love his work so much like he's not doing the covers regularly for us anymore but marco is stepping up to the plate and knocking out of the park but we did get julian back to do the uh a brand new cover for our first hardcover and it's glorious um let's dive into the last five issues of well the next five issues that we want to talk about um which is interesting you're jumping across like the pockets of different stuff happens around daredevil yeah and it's Right before this are some of what I remember specifically reading as a kid because I think I got attracted to the acts of vengeance of it all. Mm-hmm. And so you, oh my God, where yeah. you would have one character's villain go into another book and like there was all these great and there's one of my favorite Captain America stories as part of this and you get some really cool stuff and you have this really weird, cool Ultron <laughs> yeah. storyline. But that's just like a blip in, in, in all this. The Ultron yeah. part of it is cool. But there's also like the stuff with the Inhumans and then the bubbling stuff with Blackheart and Mephisto. What a really just beautiful, strange run in between what we even were talking about here. Yeah, you could pull any one or two issues out of this run and hold it up as an example of like some of the greatest comic stories. Like, um, yeah, leading up to this, there's a whole critique of factory farming that like Daredevil versus factory farming is not a thing (laughs) that, you know, I, I think of. That's not even like him versus it because he's not the, the point of view character. It's like the daughter of the factory farmer, Brandy, yeah. who becomes like a character throughout this. Yeah, yeah. That, that Ultron issue is like one of the, or the couple issues. It's just so highly philosophical about like what it means to be conscious and tied up with the, the number nine stuff. Like uh, what does it mean to be this genetically bred perfect woman? It's, yeah. <laughs> I try to pick the acts of vengeance meeting where like all the editors are talking about like, Oh, who's, who's going to get who? Oh, can fantastic four fight, um, you know, Magneto. Oh, that'd be cool. Blah, blah, blah. Can daredevil fight Ultron? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Which seems outlandish, but it, it it ends up really working. It's really good. Um, Those are the preceding issues to what we're talking about. So Mm -hmm. listeners, if you've got Marvel unlimited, you can read the whole bunch, but we get into 278 and we still get into tons of, cool meta everything discussions because it's a lot of it is Mephisto and Blackheart. Blackheart, I don't want to call Sun, but it's like Blackheart is the creation of Mephisto. And then like the rebellion aspect, which spins in on the ultimate rebellion of the devil from God. And it's like Mm -hmm. playing with all these ideas and you've got two Inhumans with you. You've got Gorgon (laughs) and Karnak. Karnak. Like of all the Inhumans to pick, (laughs) it's like the hoofed one and the one with the big old head. And they like are at odds with each other. Then you're pulling in these random characters. They're looking for Black Bolt's uh, and Medusa's son. Daredevil's almost like the fifth wheel in this extravaganza and it's so much fun yeah it's the wildest road trip like i don't even know how you come up with the combination of characters and then just to send them all to hell or it's it's hell but it's not even it's like it's everything like the the place they go to is kind of like it's a limbo of sorts or a purgatory like you know because there's like weird little demons and there's like kind of broken angels and there's like representations of different mythologies and religions and there's so much at play there and it's, it's a great exercise as a writer to, um, as something that writers always need to have in their, in their mind when they're writing stuff like this, is what am I giving the artist to draw? And she splits up the characters on their separate journeys, but she makes sure each one has something very distinct visually happening and also affords John Rita Jr. a break once in a while because they throw Daredevil in snow. <laughs> which is the oldest writer artist trick in the book right <laughs> put the character in snow and it works so well um i wanted to specifically talk about a page in issue 279 because i re- i had read this before the last time i talked to Anne, which was probably a year or two ago for an episode of this week in marvel and i remember reading the story and there's a page where you have number nine uh, and the the crew they're in a diner and the waitress comes over and then like on her forehead, the blood, like blood shoots out and then it starts flowing down her face. And on the right side, Johnny zooms in on her face and the bottom panel is, you know, number nine saying you're bleeding all over the food. And I remember that being such a horrifying (laughs) 
but also funny sequence. And just, <laughs> I wanted to give a special shout out specifically to Christy Scheel, who is the colorist mm. on pretty much this entire run. And Christy yeah. had done a, a ton of books for Marvel in this era, but like the coloring, especially just, it's the subtle things across these issues. The the reds always pop so spectacularly yeah. in, in these issues of Daredevil and then contrast with everything else. Man, this page, I freaking love it I so know, much. I know. Yeah, it's it's horrific and funny at the same time. And horror and comedy have a lot in common in terms of just kind of like, you know, they're both based on the elements of surprise. And uh, yeah, it's just so creepy. All the subtle stuff with Mephisto kind of messing with their brains, yeah. like on, on route to the afterlife is uh, really masterfully done. Yeah. And, um, you know, Blackheart, just a, such a cool character design. I think I got to these issues later where i first encountered blackheart in a there was like we did a prestige format one shot there was like punisher wolverine, wolverine ghost rider yeah ghost rider i yeah, remember that yeah johnny did that and i read that issue yeah. like it's like dog-eared i still have my copy from a kid but i remember like reading blackheart and so coming back yeah. and seeing his like original <laughs> stories like whoa it's really it's even yeah. cooler here this all this stuff is great one of the things that i also noticed and you know we were talking about the way mephisto is drawn Johnny kind of puts him in these like classical poses of classical female figures often or naked figures or like stuff you'd see in statues or, and I, I don't know. I just never picked up on that before, but man, it's just one of those, again, those little touches that we pick up on. Yeah. Yeah. And even like the demons in hell, like just kind of sparsely drawn, just like featureless characters that are being tossed around every which way. John is the master of scale. Like that was one of the things like when I was reading um, his run on Amazing with JMS, uh, one of my favorite sequences is like his big fight with Marlin in New York. And the feeling of scale is something that like, I don't even think movies can replicate it the way he does it, where you feel how big everything is. Like when he hits somebody with a street light, like you feel the debris of a building uh, in a way with, with Ramita Jr.'s work that you just can't in any other medium, I don't think. And the, the Mephisto stuff is the same like you know when he grows really big and like the, the tiny demons are just kind of like falling off of him like confetti it's just so cool your panel descriptions in particular obviously you have a, you've done a ton of work as an artist and so you you know it inside out can you can you describe what your panel descriptions in particular look like are they the same regardless of who you're working with or do you end up having a shorthand with uh you know any given artist the more I work with an artist, the more you kind of understand what their strengths are and what kind of direction that they need or don't need. I tend to step away mostly with artists for choreography of fight scenes. That's something I kind of picked up from Chris Anka. Like when I started doing Star-Lord with Chris, he had two requests of me. One was that he wanted to choreograph his fight scenes. And other uh, requests was he wanted Star-Lord to be shirtless in every <laughs> issue. Like those are legitimately the two things. And I was like, no problem. Uh, and then you get a lot more interesting stuff from an artist. If they're interested in being a storyteller, some artists are actually only interested in being renderers hmm. and making an image look cool, which is a very different thing from telling a story. Like John Romita Jr., like, I don't think you have to give him much. He knows how to pace a scene out, uh, how to tell a story and how to showcase action in a way that it's not just like close-ups of fists punching so everyone's different. Um, I always like to make sure I kind of talk to the artist at the beginning to make sure, you know, I'm not stepping on toes and like if I'm giving too much detail or not enough detail, you know, every writer artist combination, especially when you're doing work for companies is an arranged marriage of the sort. Mm. You're hoping it really works out and we have to have communication to make sure it works. In all the technical conversations that we end up having about these things, about, you know, what were you thinking? What were your influences for the writing? What were your influences, you know, as an artist, X, Y, Z, that pure human element is so fascinating to me. I was literally listening to an interview with Ron Howard last night, and he was talking about that dynamic as a director. And at times when you need the buy-in from someone and you want to give them the leeway to be fully creative and, you know, paint on the canvas themselves, but with an eye towards the final product at the same time, it's just a fascinating dynamic to me. And I guess it falls upon you as the writer to have that long-term vision and, and know like this is going to be right for where we're eventually going. But I also, maybe the editor is involved in that as well. In general, I, I love thinking about those kind of things. Yeah. These, these kind of books aren't created 
in a vacuum with like a single author. There's multiple conversations, sometimes with everyone, sometimes with individuals. Like, and then, you know, editorial is a, a whole other thing as well uh, in terms of like poking holes in the story to make sure that you, uh, uh, what you're doing uh, can kind of stand the test of the readers because mm-hmm. editors are your first reader. So uh, any question the editor has will probably be a question that the reader has as well. So that's uh, extremely helpful. And then, you know, there's, there's levels even above too, like, you know, like CB uh, will weigh on stuff that could affect other books and like can affect like the publishing line. And he's got a great eye for that as well. So having his input is super helpful. Joe Casada, like even down to sales, like, you know, David Gabriel knows what's going to sell. So like he'll have input as well. And, the ideal scenario is like everyone around the writer gives their input, but they also understand that the writer is going to take that input and like weigh it out and and have the focus be on what the story is going to be for the reader. So it's a fascinating process. Like I think a lot of people just think like a writer just writes a thing, sends it right. in and then that's it. But there's so many layers to this job. Yeah. You really become invested in the whole process. Mm. Yeah, I, I would love to know what it was like 1990 in the New York City offices. Ralph Macchio gets a script where Anne's written. All right, all right so we, we have a shot of Karnak and Gorgon. They're in the fetal position, naked as the day they were born, but mm-hmm. they are so hairy, so incredibly hairy. And we're going to follow them naked and uh, genitalless for the next three issues. Ralph, are you on board? And I want Ralph to just be like, okay. Like we, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I love Ralph. I, I, I've only known him yeah. in, you know, the last, you know, 15 years or so in, in a different capacity than he would have been there as, you know, writer and editor and stuff. I love that this story exists and that yeah. especially these three issues where they are in these variations of the afterlife, the underworld, hell, heaven, whatever it is. And we follow this really weird journey of all these characters and they have to come together to escape and it's just nothing you would have expected. Yeah. At that point, I think I think if Anne and John came in and this was like their first Daredevil story, Ralph would be like, "What? No. What are you? <laughs> what are you thinking?" But because it's uh, at the tail end of some success, I think I don't think it would ever like charted super high. But their tie-ins. That's the other thing about the run. Their tie-ins were so spectacular. They did a Follow the Mutants tie-in, which was amazing. Uh, and then the Inferno stuff, which is kind of the heart of Inferno, really, like really creepy New York stuff. They played the game and they like, they, they, I think they had decent sales numbers so they could just kind of go like, all right, this is John's last story arc. So let's just go out with a bang. Like these are the themes we've been building to. We've got all these characters and all their journeys. Like what better place to have them kind of come to their individual realizations than in the afterlife, yeah. which we've been teasing since issue 266 with yeah. Mephisto. Uh, and we get Mephisto big, just massive, giant yeah. breasts with weird, like, he's got, like, the one single long thing coming off of the nipple. It's, I, I look, I looked at this really closely, you guys, so uh, it's fair. It gets real into it. The, uh, the amount of detail in that character versus, you know, spoiler, Silver Surfer at the end, you know, this pristine all white character coming in versus just this like finely detailed and even like the way daredevil's rendered in this too this is like a real testament to al williamson's inking like like the reds of his costume are just like contour drawn in in thick black like he must have been using just like a thick magic marker whatever to do that or like some sort of dry brush i don't know how he kind of pulled that off to differentiate between like the trunks and the gloves and the the boots with the rest of the costume like that yeah that gritty look is just in contrast to the the snowy white of the uh the afterlife for daredevil it's just it's such a perfect choice yeah it, man the silver surfer of it all i just <laughs> forgot i was like surfer pops up in in the second to last part of this and he's just like yeah. oh wait i sent something let me go check this out and then he comes in and it's just like it's such a minor part. He comes in to be like, I'm going to fight the devil. You guys escape. And I, I, for some reason, it just, this line really, I stuck with me. It's a tiny little panel. And daredevil says, this is no fight for human eyes. And that's, that's, that's it. Like we're then thrust out of what's going on with Mephisto and silver surfer. 
I love that the, the Silver Surfer is just so like out of left field. Like they introduce him with like a full splash page of him surfing. Yep. Just having like, a good in time. In a Daredevil comic out of nowhere. Yeah, what was it? He they go. He's on a quest. Sometimes he's noble. Sometimes he's lonely. But mostly he loves to go surfing. The Silver <laughs> yes. Surfer. Like, That's like a poster you'd have in your room in like 1990. <laughs> um, yeah, I forget. I think it's the issue after this. But like Silver Surfer goes there because they describe him and Mephisto as like a married couple, <laughs> where like one part of the couple just kind of knows that the other one's up to no good. Like what a weird way to frame that relationship, and that—that's why he shows up. Yeah, it's uh, there's some real wild choices, and it and it works, you know. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. yeah, it really does work. Uh, that was Daredevil uh, two sixty one, two sixty six, and two seventy eight through two eighty two. Some great freaking comics, uh, and yeah. as we've talked about extensively during this uh, th- these chats, read read the whole arc, read everything and yeah. did on um, on Daredevil. It's really, really worthwhile. Yeah, hundred percent. And then knowing Ryan, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, knowing that we then go into two eighty three, which is this issue that takes place in in like a house in the suburbs, is it kind of makes it equally even crazier knowing that we're going from this straight into that. What a fascinating run. It's like, boy, I can't believe I just went to hell. It's like a couple of creatures from the moon. Anyways. Yeah. 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 I don't know why I told you to read that. I guess I had just read it for, for, you know, kicks and giggles. And and I I think it was just one that like was, is just reverberates in, in, and resonates in such an amazing way, you know, 30, 35 years later. Chip, do you have, you know, you suggested these and I think these are great. Do you have other books that you, you think about that have these influences on you that you go back to, or you look at? not even necessarily for your work, just uh, of, of like a book you're currently doing or have been on, but just something that's just like, this is my jam. Yeah. It all depends on kind of the genre you're working in at the moment too. Like um, my other kind of like all timer that I think gets overlooked a lot is uh, Walt Simonson's run of fantastic four. Cause you know, he obviously everyone knows him from Thor. That was like the, the, the big one, but um but his Fantastic Four issues are just the wildest, most beautiful stuff uh, in comics. And I can't recall ever looking forward more to a comic coming out monthly than that one. You know, it's also that runs known too for like the, the weird kind of uh, middle part where um, Art Adams came on board to introduce the new Fantastic Four. You know, Hulk my and jam. Ghost Rider and Wolverine, <laughs> my jam. which are super fun issues, but like all the FF stuff around it. Yeah. Like, um, I don't think. I don't think there's been a run except maybe Wade and Waringo that kind of really played into the, the Explorer giant Stan and Jack of it all, um, where it's all just kind of fun nonsense on, on a lot of levels. Like they, they're, they're on a time sled, like their main <laughs> mode of travel is a time sled, which is just like, it makes no sense, <laughs> but visually it's just so awesome. I love it. I love it. It's yeah, is one everyone should read. They fight like uh, uh, Joseph Stalin in a giant exo armor at one point. Hell yeah! And then and then immediately they're on like uh, they're in the past, you know, fighting dinosaurs. Like it's it's really really something else. Well, if you get another email from our producer Jorge about booking you for a future episode, it might be about those books because you sold me on them. I've never read I'll, them. I'll, so. I'll, I'll I'll talk about them. I did a <laughs> I revisited them when I was doing Marvel two and one. It might be my favorite thing I've, I've managed to do at Marvel. I did a, an annual for Marvel 2-in-1 that was basically like infamous Iron Man, Doctor Doom story where it kind of like goes back and forth in time. But we meet another version of uh, Doctor Doom and he's wearing this armor that Walt Simonson designed for him in like issue 351, I think, of Fantastic Four. And it's still my favorite, my favorite Doctor Doom armor. Like mm-hmm. he made him so menacing and cool looking. Yeah, I had to. I had to sneak it in there somewhere. Hell yeah! Well, don't get me started about Chip's two-on-one run. Like don't you get said, me that, started. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah, we can. We can't hold back the the vitriol. We'll get to spewing from this. I know. I know. I know. Uh, well, we Chip. we can we can talk about that when we talk about Walt Simonson's Fantastic Four run. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll save that for another day. Chip, thanks for being here. Congrats on uh, wrapping up Sex Criminals and, and congrats on amazing stuff with uh, Daredevil and everything you're doing. And yeah, I appreciate it. You're a ding dang delight, my friend. We appreciate oh, you. you guys. All right. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Chip. Thank you again to Chip 
what an incredible conversation. What a great writer. He's one of the funniest guys around. He is one of the most talented writers around. And beyond that, what I just love tapping into is the passion that he has for these characters and these stories. It's really, really great to see. You know, it's something that you can never be reminded of enough to say, oh, this is someone who's so invested in such particular, not just issues, but moments from decades ago with this character and tapping into what that means and then allowing that to inform what is an incredible run that he's on right now with the character. I just love it so much. Indeed, real dang good. All right, that about wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, and MR Daniel with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And you know, we, we don't talk about it much, but Brad did spend a significant amount of time in Hell's Kitchen in the 80s wearing really, really weird pieces of clothing. Uh, but he's come out, he's, he's looking good these days. He's, uh, his fashion sense has only gotten stronger. So kudos to you, Mr. Brad Barton. Add a little R into that t-shirt from the issue we were talking about. Instead of bad, exclamation mark, you got Brad, exclamation mark. Oh, man. One of our producers better Photoshop that. I'm Ryan. (laughs) And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.